Dear Broadies, before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion in the United States. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety, and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans and people who live in America. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. You can find a list of where to donate in each state at donationsforabortion.com. That's donations, the number four, abortion.com. I have personally started donating to states where trigger laws go into effect immediately. Remember, even if you can only spend $1 or $5, that helps. There are things we can do to fight this, and it is going to take continued focus and community support. So I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. We're kind of oftentimes trained to kind of be pitted against one another, especially yep. like, oh, there can only be so many women of color. There can only be so many black women. There can only be so many, like, whatever, all these, like, arbitrary ass rules that I don't know who even made, right? Like, no, we can all, like, thrive. We can all eat, right? Like, I don't need to have every contract. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pod Broads. This is a podcast about women in podcasting, and I'm your host, Alexandra Cole. your week has been going well though i say that and honestly all around social media i was seeing people post about how challenging this past week was and honestly same i was listening to a recent episode of jessica lineato's podcast ghost of a podcast whose conversation with me you can hear on episode one of this podcast if you haven't already and on hers she was talking about this astrological transit on the 17th that was basically going to bring some challenging dynamics and energy and that shit did not disappoint because last Wednesday was a day. So if you were in that boat with me, I hope you're just feeling a lot lighter today as you listen to this episode. So I'm really stoked to bring you today's interview with Gabrielle Horton, who again, you might have heard me mention on last week's episode with Rita Petmesai, who was Gabrielle's mentee at Work It in 2019. And I just love the way many of these women are interconnected in the first part of season one, partially because I think it really shows how powerful it can be to be connected and in collaboration with each other, both in and outside of podcasting. But it also is just really exciting to see how I've been able to talk with people who I've admired for some time now. And Gabrielle is definitely one of those people. I saw her speak on stage at Work It and part of her talk called A Transparent Look at the Glow Up, which she co-presented with TK Dutez and which centered specifically on women of color in audio, was about needing and building community as a freelancer and carving out a path for yourself and your fellow women. 
I learned so much during that presentation and was like ferociously writing down notes as she and TK were speaking. So you can imagine I was thrilled when she agreed to come on to my podcast. And I'm going to get to Gabrielle's intro in just a moment. But given the timing of this episode, I do want to ground us in some podcasting news as of late that ultimately does connect to a portion of Gabrielle and mine's conversation. So recently, another podcast called Reply All launched the beginning of a special series about the magazine Bon Appetit and the racist infrastructure of the workplace and magazine. There was a huge scandal, for those of you who don't know, I think it was about a year ago, where there was a photo of the white editor-in-chief in brownface that surfaced, and what followed was a bunch of people coming forward about the racism they experienced while working there. So this Reply All limited series called The Test Kitchen was doing a deep dive into what happened behind the scenes of that workplace culture and how these racist actions by many staff members were able to thrive. And then after episode two was released, Eric Eddings, co-host and creator of The Nod, shared about the racism and harassment he and many other black creators and creators of color at Gimlet experienced, specifically by some of the folks working on this Reply All series. So as you can see, it's really fucked up. So I just want to encourage you to go check out Eric's tweet thread on it, as well as his co-host, Brittany Luce's. And the roundup of it all can be found on Podcasting Colors Instagram highlight section. And I just know that some of you listening are podcasters and are entrenched in the news happening in this industry, and some of you aren't. And I want you to know about what's going on. I also want to bring it up because this is something that is happening, obviously not just in podcast spaces. And so it's something we have to look at, especially for my fellow white people. We have to look at how we may have contributed to creating toxic work environments for our colleagues of color, especially our black colleagues, whether inadvertently or purposefully, whether currently or in the past. And it is especially pertinent to bring up in podcasting because, as Gabrielle points out at some point in our interview, it's still a white boys club. And even the women as a whole are still so underrepresented. If we're just looking at the women part of it all, the racial breakdown is still very much favoring white women. And that's a problem. I think it's always important to remember with the framing of these conversations that the percentage of what we call quote unquote underrepresented folks isn't small because of a lack of experience or talent on their part. The issue is the systemic structures that continue to reward white men in particular, but also white women who are at times less qualified or mediocre in comparison or even protecting them doing harmful shit in the process along with just having more access to it because of all the equity and equality issues we have in this country. So honestly, I could go on and on, but I do want to get into this intro and this amazing interview with Gabrielle because she is such a wealth of knowledge. And I was just really fucking stoked, as I mentioned already, to talk to her and learn from her and her experience. So for those of you who don't know Gabrielle, she is the founder of The Woodshaw, a company where she provides production services to podcast creators. And since we last talked, she is now the executive producer for an upcoming podcast series at Headspace, which is set to launch in spring 2021. And I can't wait to check it out. Another huge project of hers is Natal, a docuseries about having a baby while black. She's the co-creator alongside Martina Abrams-Alunga of You Had Me at Black. And it's something we spend a good chunk of the latter part of our conversation talking about. And so when we recorded, it was back in July of 2020 when they were just halfway through season one. So keep a lookout for season two. In this conversation, she tells me about the personal story that was the inception of the idea for the podcast, as well as the viral tweet that kind of spurred it on and solidified the partnership between her and Martina. 
and I am just personally obsessed with this podcast. It taught me so much about the history of gynecology in this country and how specifically systemic racism impacts black women and black birthing parents. So yeah, you're going to want to stick around for that part of our convo. And in the first half, which you'll hear momentarily, Gabrielle shares about her experience as a political staffer for notable figures like John Lewis and as someone who worked for President Obama's second campaign and how that work ultimately led to her podcast work and what really brings her joy and purpose. So this episode is also a prime candidate for anyone really into the craft and process of podcast creation and production, and also a great breakdown of what Gabrielle's life as a freelance producer really looks like, what she has decided it's going to look like, and how she encourages that piece in particular. Like how you can make a decision in what you want your work life to look like and to encompass, and how to ensure that sticks. So yeah, let's get to it. I want to start with just first an intro, like tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and then we'll jump in. Yeah, it almost feels like a loaded question. Um, <laughs> so um, I am Gabrielle. I am I'm a native of Inglewood, California. I currently live in Los Angeles. Um, I would identify as a podcast producer, showrunner, host. Um, and that kind of encompasses the work that I do for uh, podcast clients, but also uh, original work um, that I'm helping to lead and produce. So I guess that's sort of what, you know, how I, how I guess I identify in terms of my occupation. Um, but I guess besides that, because I never lead with that, I, I think I always identify like I'm a black woman, um, you know, I'm a, a millennial, um, I don't know. Those are kind of other things I, I kind of think of for myself. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think something I'm very interested in, especially in these conversations, is like how how those identities intersect with the work that we're doing and how it informs it and also guides it and pushes it towards certain directions. And so I know you used to be a Democratic political staffer, right? <laughs> yeah. And then And then you got into audio. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us... Like, how did that come to be? How did you start there? And then how did you get into the audio part? Yeah, so it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it's quite the story. It's really interesting. And everybody, including my family, is still trying to figure it out, I think. But um, so when I was at Spelman College, where I did undergrad, my undergrad, um, I started working for Congressman John Lewis, um, which at the time I knew was a big deal, but definitely didn't realize how big of a deal, you know, he was. And that kind of was like my first foray into politics, if you will. Um, and so I worked for uh, the congressman for a year in the DC office and then in the Atlanta office. And this is all like while I'm still in school and whatnot. Um, and so I was really on this path of like, I'm going to law school and I wanted to sort of become a public defender and sort of do, um, you know, public interest law. And so I started really immersing myself um, in those kind of spaces, if you will, and applied to uh, law school, got in. And then I was like, well, actually, I got the campaign bug and went to go work on President Obama's reelection campaign in North Carolina. And that kind of spiraled into working on other campaigns, um, which if you haven't really worked on a political campaign before, they're like these really intense but short bursts, and they're not always short, right? Depending on what time and what phase of the campaign you're coming onto, but they can be these really, really intense um, short bursts of time where like your whole 
body, mental, physical, everything is kind of immersed in like helping to elect this candidate. And so it can be like a source of a lot of energy, but also can just be very taxing. And so I knew that long term, I didn't want to sort of stay in campaign worlds where some people are kind of like lifetime campaigners. Yeah. Um, I went to go work for, um, at the time, Cory Booker was still the mayor of Newark, but helped him with his first Senate run in New Jersey. So I did that. So at that point, that's like my second campaign. I was kind of ready to kind of start to sort of settle down into some area that I could, you know, still affect change, still work within um, Black communities, communities of color, um, and sort of really helping to bridge the gap between what communities were in need of and resources that they kind of were asking for and the policymakers who had the ability to make the decisions or like, you know, write the check for those programs. Um, So I was, you know, getting ready to, I was kind of ready to sort of settle down, but still find a way to affect change. And I always like knew I was getting closer to what I wanted to be doing, but there really weren't a lot of like words and I didn't know how to describe what it is I wanted to do. Cause I really loved, I loved meeting people and communities like where they were, like whether it was on porch stoops or in sort of like churches or at the grocery store, wherever it was where I had to meet voters, right? Register voters, engage voters, lead, uh, you know, GOTV efforts, like all of those sort of campaign things. I love the people kind of connection with it, which is interesting because I'm actually kind of an introvert, which I don't think anyone believes, but I do. <laughs> but it's it, so I got a lot of energy from that. And I found a lot of power in listening to people. And I think that's also when I started learning how to listen, like actively listen to people. And so I knew that I really enjoyed hearing people's stories and firsthand accounts of how policy was impacting them on a day-to-day basis, how it was playing out in the communities that they lived in, and how they wanted it to play out. So I was always aware of these things. I was also always aware of like the power of hearing and centering the voices of people who are doing this day in and day out, right? And so especially when you're on a campaign, because you're just coming into a city or state or wherever you're at, you may not be familiar with the place. And you really learn a place through the voters that you're engaging with. They tell you kind of where to go, where to find people who may not be registered, what times Mm -hmm. to go, you know, like, they kind of give you the roadmap. And it's, um, so I really love that about my time working kind of like in politics. And then eventually I worked for some nonprofits and then uh, worked for Mayor Eric Garcetti here in Los Angeles for a year overseeing public engagement efforts for South LA. So again, it was kind of all of these worlds colliding again, but I love the public engagement aspect of it, thinking about ways to sort of bring City Hall to the people um, and also bringing the people to City Hall, right? It has to be like an even exchange of power and knowledge. So I definitely ruffled a lot of feathers with that (laughs) approach, which is like, you know, totally fine with that. But, you know, I think... (laughs) Um, for me, it was just really challenging to work in that type of environment where like, you I feel like you can kind of see what needs to be changed, you know, what needs to be changed, you're hearing what needs to be changed, but there's all this bureaucracy, or there's just a lack of willingness to really sort of to to put, I guess, money where it needs to be going. And so I kind of get frustrated with those sort of things. And and so like, I guess most millennials get frustrated. I went to graduate school and um, I studied public policy there. And I knew going to grad school that I wasn't going to become like a bureaucrat, like a big federal agency. I knew that I wasn't interested in like running statistical models. I wasn't interested in like writing policy memos for the rest of my life. And not that none, of, and it's not that 
those things are not effective. I just knew that that's not where I found joy. And it's not mm-hmm. where I think that, um, how would I say it? Like, I, I, I think, I don't know if that's the best use of my time and talent, right? Yeah. Like, I think everybody, it's what I did learn from grad school is like cost benefit analysis, right? And you also learn comparative advantage. And these are just like really kind of basic sort of economic mo- uh, economic terms that kind of, you know, you, they obviously get more advanced, but they help you to kind of understand some things, right? So the cost benefit analysis, and we'll probably get into this a bit too, because <laughs> shocker, I hate editing audio and I don't do it, right? And so thinking <laughs> about my comparative advantage is like, not thinking statistical, building statistical models, like that's not really my jam. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I already knew going into grad school, like, okay, this is going to look a little different. I didn't know how it was going to look. Um, but you kind of get through your first year of, uh, of studies. And I was at Michigan at the Ford school of public policy. And I think it was between my first and second year. I had a really prestigious like fellowship at a big foundation and I was just crying every day. Like mm. right before work would start, I'd be in the bathroom crying. I'd be crying on the way to work because I was just so unhappy with what I was doing. And mm. um, for the most part, I had touched every part it felt like of like the public sector, um, bigger organizations, smaller organizations, at the political scene, at the campaign scene, grassroots, bureaucrat. Like I had kind of touched a lot of these short bursts of time, but I hadn't found like that space that I just really loved being in. Um, and I think that over the entire course of like my time, even from college, even from high school, honestly, all the way till graduate school, one of the things that I was always sort of a part of doing was helping to um, kind of curate events, right? So bringing either speakers on campus, organizing kind of like uh, large gatherings and convenings at the nexus of like policy and activism, um, usually around like for, for black students or black communities, it was always sort of like finding a ways to get everyone together to communicate in a way mm-hmm. that people could feel heard and we can start to move forward with addressing whatever the concerns are. So that was already something that I was doing on a regular basis and, and organizing kind of these large events um, on campus. And I had so, like I got so much joy from it, you know, like, classes weren't really that challenging for me. It just wasn't like, I just knew I didn't get anything from it. You know, like it was like, okay, I got to do this thing for class and I have a Mm -hmm. fellowship, so I have to maintain whatever. And that wasn't really a challenge, you know, but, um, I just knew that I wasn't getting the kind of life from it that like I thought I deserved. And, um, so when I came back from my second year of graduate school, I, you know, it was like, I had already been in touch with the NPR member station there and they had to reach out to me about, cause they were like, we really want to do some programming with you. And, you know, I had been on like a 2016, like election panel cause someone sent okay. my name in. So I'd already been in touch with the NPR member mm. station there. And so I reached back out to them when I started grad school that second year. And I was like, you know, I'm really looking forward to maybe exploring what something in media could look like. I don't know what medium and, but I feel like this is a good place to start to kind of you know, obviously your NPR member stations, a lot of politics and policy. And um, so you knew what kind of like the gist of things that you'd be covering. And so I started there and that was quite a journey. And um, that was probably, you know, you see a lot of like uh, Twitter posts and memes and things about like how I think black women and, and folks of color, folks at the intersection of all these different identities experience like, kind of like white work environments and like mm. white power structures. I experienced everything you could imagine. And so 
the fact that even like over two years later, and I guess by the time this comes out, almost three years later, I'm still in podcasting is still very surprising to me because mm-hmm. I received every sign and gesture that was like, this is not for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, everything from having my, my, my pay withheld for two months from not being spoken to or acknowledged when I was working in the newsroom. And I was so thankful. I had a really great ended up having a great boss. He became my boss, but I wasn't assigned to him at first. And he sort of saw me kind of just sitting, you know, no one was ever giving me assignments. No one was ever looping me in. There were younger white women interns that were definitely getting a lot of that kind of attention um, and guidance and mentorship. And they were undergrads, by the way, right? So you're thinking about someone like me who at the time was like maybe 27, 28, has a like, I would say a wealth of knowledge that could be beneficial to a space like that and is eager to learn about how to sort of do the ins and outs of it all. But anyways, I, uh, you know, uh, Joe Lindstrauss took me under his wing and I started working on Stateside, which is a a daily news show that airs twice a day on Michigan radio. And, you know, it's been around for a long time and it's really, really phenomenal hosted by Cynthia Canty. And so that was really kind of like my first like break, really having a chance to help and lead uh, in terms of production of like a daily news show and what that could sound like and thinking about new voices to bring in and what does it mean for the state of Michigan and, and whatnot. And so I had a, I loved working on that show, you know, despite all the things that I dealt with at Michigan radio as a whole working um, on stateside gave me a sense of like what working with a team can look like. What does it mean to cover news? All of these different things that I still think about to this day. Um, and so that sort of got me into working in the audio space. Um, so it was really sort of like following up on that opportunity with Michigan radio. I stuck through a few months of kind of what felt like hell, you know, um, and then started working with, on, with Joe and his team on stateside. And it, I would say definitely altered the course of, you know, I guess my, my career, you know, and sort of thinking about, okay, this is possible, just not in this environment. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always knew I'm just like a very unfiltered person and I curse. And like, I oftentimes feel as though I have more radical ideas and maybe what like maybe more bureaucratic institutions, you know, are communicating to, to their, mm-hmm. to their constituents. And so I always knew that like, I, I, I'm probably, I'm not the NPR girl, you know, I'm not, yeah. and I, and I'm not really trying to be, but I'm not the NPR girl. I'm not someone who can really stick to a script like that. Like I kind of stick to like my own script. And, um, so there's that. <laughs> so that also makes it challenging working for elected officials when, you know, when you're in conflict, right? Like that was part of why I left, uh, working in politics is cause like, I was tired of sticking to someone else's script that I didn't really feel spoke for me or people like me or communities I came from. So, so I think it was good training grounds being at Michigan radio. I knew that I wasn't going to be there for forever. Yeah. And so I kind of, that was like my first journey into, into podcasting or not even podcasting it was really just sort of like audio storytelling mm-hmm. and uh, public radio. And um, I kind of think I just saw like the flexibility in, in podcasting, be able to get these stories out, get the news and information out, but in a way that's accessible, in a way that can connect with younger listeners, older listeners, um, and just find a way to like talk to black folks. <laughs> so that's the long story. It's, uh, you know, was yes. deeply unhappy, you know, in politics, but still wanted to talk politics, but just in a different way. Yeah. And um kind of, you know, found, found my way somehow. (laughs) 
That's amazing. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. I think, well, you covered a lot of like what I wanted to kind of ask and like address and just kind of seeing, I think it's so interesting seeing like all the places we've been and how it connects into what the work you're actually doing now. And it's, and it's weird because it's, I mean, at least I know like when I've been in it, I'm like, I don't see where, how this is going to come in later. And then I reflect back like 10 years, 15 years later, and I'm like, oh, hmm, this makes sense. It always made sense to me though. Like even when the moments weren't smooth, like mm-hmm. I'm a planner and, but I'm also a planner that allows for flexibility within the plan. But every, every time I made a move or moved here or there, whether it was like organization or company or city wise, like. I I knew what I was doing. You know, I was Mm -hmm. very aware of like how this all connected, you know, like, are there certain experiences that I would love to have never, you know, never repeat again? Absolutely. Right. Are there some experiences that I wish that I could have completely jumped over? Absolutely. But I understand the connection between all of them. Right. Like it wasn't like, yeah, like it all made sense to me. It was just like, oh, this is really painful. I hope that this ends soon. Or man, this is really great. I can't wait to sort of replicate this feeling or this experience, yeah. um, you know, in another capacity. So do you think that was that was kind of the driving force for you in terms of staying in audio, even though you went through that really poor experience in the beginning, like just knowing, okay, I want to do this in a different capacity with the stories I want to tell and investigate. Is that what kind of kept you there or was it more than that? I think that it was clear to me that there were certain stories that were not being told or covered in a way that I felt like they could be. And I knew that it was possible to make them. Now, whether or not I did that on my own or at a company, like I was still very open to exploring, you know, what that looked like. But I just knew that there were certain stories that just like were not getting greenlit, you know, like they were, or just not getting the attention they deserved or no one was even thinking about them in the meetings I was in or mm-hmm. at the teams I, you know, was working a part of. So I think that just sort of knowing that like, there's still a lack of fill in the blank that like someone's got to do it. And clearly it can't be, you know, you all, you have no like, you know, interest or regard for, you know, whether it's like this topic or this group of people or whatever it is. And so I think just knowing that like, there were certain stories not being told mm-hmm. um, and that they just weren't being told. So it's like, someone's got to do them. Right. And so yeah. the question is like, who's going to do them. And so I think I just kind of knew that like I had something to say and you other people may also have something to say and that together people could be interested in what we collectively have to say. And it was just kind of like, I see that you guys are green letting green lighting a bunch of stuff that like, I, you know, I don't feel like reference reflected in that or seen in that and that's okay but it's not going to be like how I like my value is not rooted in that like you know and so I'm gonna find other spaces where I can kind of create explore and um, tell other stories and so it definitely took me a while to kind of find my footing which eventually ended up just having to be me working for myself but definitely the best decision I probably have ever made Mm career-wise so yeah I mean I I don't know. I don't know that I think of myself as a person who's like motivated by the no's. You know, people are like, oh, you tell me no, that makes me work harder. Like, I'm mm. not really that kind of person. Like, I just don't <laughs> really believe in no in that regard. Like, I, obviously, I believe in no in like the consensual, right? Like relationship, mm. personal yes. state boundaries. But in terms of no, in terms of just like um, a no without a reason in terms of the work environment, like I have a hard time with that. And because especially if the no is not rooted in anything real besides uh-huh. just like, no, we're not going to do that. Or no, we're not going to fund that show. Or no, we really don't believe that that's important. Like 
uh, I'm going to push back on that. But I don't know that I get like, my energy doesn't come from that. My energy comes from just like a pure desire to want to talk about different types of topics. And if you don't want to fund it or green light it, that's okay. I'm just going to find another way to do it. So I wouldn't say I'm motivated by the nose. Um, I also think that for me in terms of working in media, um, podcasting was what podcasting and like radio audio storytelling was where I kind of got my first training. So, you know, if I really enjoyed writing, I'd probably be doing this as a writer. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if I, you know, had, got an exposure to maybe like filmmaking, I'd probably be doing this in terms of films and like short stories and short documentaries. But like, I just happened to sort of start in the audio space. So that's, those are the tools that I'm familiar with and have access to and have a network that also is immersed in that space. So I'm also not someone who's like, I'm obsessed with podcasting. <laughs> I, I think I really love the accessibility of audio storytelling. Mm-hmm. I love the intimacy of it. And I just so happened to gotten my first chops in this space. But it's not to say that I think podcasting is like higher than that or holier than that. It's just like I just happened to start working at the NPR member station and found that this is a really cool way to, to be able to communicate with people and to people. Yeah. So. You know, so it's just, it's one of those things. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I I definitely resonate and love what you said about like how it's just a very intimate space because it is like yeah. it's, you're there with those people's voices. You're not interrupting them. You're really listening. Like what you said earlier, it's really good practice and active listening, both as if you're the host, but even if you're just like the actual listener of the show. Hey friends, just a brief pause from this conversation so I can tell you about The Wave Podcasting. The Wave is a company that helps women grow their podcasts so they can build an audience and get paid. They offer educational resources and a digital community of which I am a part of and have gotten to meet some pretty dope women and get some great tips along the way. Plus, the founder, Lauren Popish, is a huge reason I've been able to start this podcast. She helped me find the perfect recording equipment for my setup and just get really comfortable with jumping in for the first time. And here's what's cool. They have a free mini guide that will help you kickstart your podcast growth strategy that you can download today by going to the show notes to find the link to their website. And when you're ready, you can purchase a complete guide to podcasting and use my code PODRALAND, P-O-D-D-R-A-L-A-N-D-10 to get 10% off the total cost. So ladies, come podcast. Okay, so can you talk to me a little bit about that moment of when you were catching your footing, like, and really kind of give us some of the some of the key moments because now you are an independent producer like you freelance and um and you have a bunch of awesome projects that you're working on so what kinds of resources or things kind of helped you with that process um and what i you talked a little bit about this in in that work at presentation but the the like emotional aspect of being an independent worker um because freelance is hard like that. Like you, you need a community. And I know that's something you talked about in that, in that discussion, but kind of all those things coming together. What, what was that like? And when did you feel like you really did get your footing? Yeah. Um, so in July, so in June of 2019, I stopped working for, um, this podcast production company, which I I never really referred to by name. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was a very um, toxic work environment. And when I left, 
um, the clients that the, um, the clients of a show that we were working on at the time also left. And so mm-hmm. we were already working together and it was like, I'm leaving because I can't work in this toxic environment anymore. And they were leaving for similar reasons with that company. And so they ended up being my first clients, if you will. Right. And so that's here to slay, uh, hosted by Roxanne Gay, oh. Tracy McMillan, and Cottom. So those were my first clients, and I went out on my own in the summer of 2019. And I knew that it wasn't just going to stop with them. I knew that it would continue to grow, but also going out on my own would allow me the flexibility to also sort of start projects that like I have been dreaming about working on and, and really wanted to. So, I mean, I guess like in terms of what those immediate like date, those days after like leaving a company were like, you know, you've got this great salary, you've got work from home benefits, like you've got kind of all like the millennial perks that kind of keep people trapped and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like recreated those on my own. You know what I mean? Like when you're working for yourself, you kind of can start to create the kind of environment that you want to work in. And it takes some time. I mean, it's definitely scary. You know, there's like tear. I don't know if I cried, but like, you know, you have a lot of, I probably didn't cry, but I, I had like a lot of feelings about it. You know, yeah. did I make the right decision? Am I going to be blackballed? Um, is my name going to be tarnished? I mean, I had a lot of those fears, even to the point where I stopped going out like LA podcast events because I was oh. I was nervous about running into my old team. I was nervous about, you know, I knew I made the right decision for myself. I knew that I made the best decision in terms of leaving and, and going out on my own, but it's scary, you know, and especially when you think about like the podcasting world, like it's still very much so run by like white boys, you know, mm-hmm. and those white boys are all friends with each other. And, you know, and like, I, and I, I saw that play out when I worked at these different companies too. Right. And I was just, I was just, I, it was just a lot. And then there was these feelings of imposter syndrome, just like, am I even capable? Do I even know how to sort of like produce, you know, am I, am I qualified to do this? Like I had, all these other jobs and skills, but what does that even mean when it comes to podcasting? So that, that took a while. Cause I, I would say I had imposter syndrome from the very beginning, like me day one of, at, at the, at Michigan radio. So, you know, like a year and a half of imposter syndrome, you know, that takes an emotional toll on someone. Um, even when you have good days, it's like the next day you may not have a good day. And it's just like, you start questioning everything that you're doing. And there was a lot of times where I questioned like, should I even be in this space, right? I've gotten so many signs that are just no, 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 or, you know, being treated less than, or just like, just like literally all the things you can imagine. And it's so interesting because a lot of the companies that I worked for after Michigan Radio are like led by millennials, right? Millennials who, who are kind of clinging to this idea of, oh, you know, we are progressive and this or that. And the way that they actually interact with interns and staff, it's, it's very contradictory. Right. And so I, I had not the best experiences, but I was like, I still want to kind of do this. And at, when you're kind of launching on your own, you know, I, I filed paperwork for an LLC. Right. And, and was happy that I did that just so for tax purposes, like all my money was go through there, but it was also like, how do I balance like this client that I have this new company? And I also want to do some other projects and be available to other teams and whatnot. And so I'd say eventually that kind of started to play out. So I was working on Here to Slay, um, all of first season. Now we're in the second season. Uh, I would say the next project that came about was Natal. And so it was just like I had to figure out how to start crafting my week so that I could allow for 
time to develop the stuff that I kept hearing no for, you know, or that people weren't really talking about. So I still struggle with that. I have a really amazing assistant who helps me with that now, but just trying to figure out how to structure my day so that I can take care of what needs to be done for, for clients, but also find time in my day to like, to, to think and to create and to just, or just ideate, you know what I mean? Or just to rest too, because you need that too. So I think it's, those are the things, you know, like I, I definitely don't, glamorize like the entrepreneurial self-start or whatever people words people use these say subscribe that stuff it's it's it takes energy right like I just don't happen to have to deal with like anyone a higher up telling me anything really you know so it's mm-hmm. like there there's certain benefits to it or I just felt like I I just felt like I was in work environments that were just like really really racist and really really sexist and like yeah. really just not trying to hear from black people. And Mm -hmm. that just was my journey, right? Mm -hmm. Like just working in general beyond podcasting. And I got tired of that. I got tired of just having, I got tired of going to HR. I got tired of trying to figure out how to hide this part of myself, shrink this part and kind of show, like, I didn't want to do that anymore. I just wanted to kind of show up and just do what I wanted to do, you know, in support of like this bigger goal that we had as a team. And that was always hard. So I think in that ways, um, that's a bit different, you know, working for myself, but it's also like, I got to keep track of like the taxes and the business stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like all of the, like, kind of like the admin things that you don't really think about, like those are things that kind of take part of your day. So, you know, it's just like, um, you know, there's, there's trade-offs for everything, but I wouldn't change it for anything else, you know, but that works for me. It may not work for everyone else, you know? Yeah. So what, what does your day kind of look like your day or your week look like? I know it's, and I, I know it's like the most difficult question. Cause I also, I freelance and do like way too many different projects, but, um, there is certain patterns that I fall into. So I don't know if that's the same for you. Like, well, I, again, I think it's definitely a personal thing for me. Like I'm like an early riser. I also like run often. So like mm-hmm. for me, those are my like, those are my me hours. Like when I wake up, I'm lighting some sage. I'm opening up my curtains. Um, if I'm working out that day, like, I'm, you know, I'm getting my clothes on. And I'm going to go work out because I work out on an empty stomach and kind of just get started and I come back, you know, and probably have a series of meetings. And what I've tried to do is that for our team. So for here to slay, for instance, like we record on Mondays and Fridays, that lets me know that like, I kind of hold those two days open, right? And anytime we need to prioritize meetings or interviews or recording sessions, like they're going to prioritize those two days. Um, For natal, um, we focus on, or I focus on my calendar for natal is like Tuesday through Thursdays, like that's the sweet spot, right? And so Tuesdays, we have a lot of meetings, um, starting as early as 8am Pacific time. So um, and it's cause we have a bi-coastal team as well. And a lot of the teams I work with are bi-coastal except for the blacklist. Mm-hmm. So it's also managing that there's other people who've been up hours before I've gotten started, you know, who are like trying to get their days over days over with. <laughs> so also trying to manage that as well. So I, that's something I had to learn too. It's just like some days got to be for certain things, right? So Mondays and Fridays are like my here to slay days. The blacklist is a little bit more flexible, though we do tend to record quite a bit on Mondays and Fridays, but um, those sessions are, are pretty, um, they're pretty, they're pretty nimble, but also like kind of short in time as well. Um, but, but I'd say natal is the one that takes up a lot of time because you're building up something very new from scratch that is your own. So it's a different level of attention. So it really can look 
you know, my mornings for the most part, I'm probably definitely up by 8 a.m., right? I may or may not have worked out. Then I'm kind of meetings kind of just start, if you will. So I could have meetings with um, partner organizations, meeting with, you know, uh, other production team members, could be doing a pre-interview, you know, really quickly uh, for someone that we're going to have on here to slay. And then, you know, there's times in my day where I'm just sort of working on scripting for one of the shows, or I'm going back and listening to audio. So it's just like, it's a lot, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a lot of things kind of happening for all (laughs) three different shows. So it really depends on the week. It depends on the day, you know, it's tough. But one thing that I made sure that I kind of started to institute since we've been in quarantine is that no matter how early I wake up, I'm definitely wrapping up by 6 p.m. And if I'm not, it's got to be something that I like. It's like, oh shit, you should have been doing that yesterday, but let me catch up now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And um, and responding to emails like at appropriate hours. And I have to define what appropriate means for me because yours may be 3 a.m. That's not for me. (laughs) You're going to hear from me when I, in the morning, you know? So, and just reminding myself that everything is not urgent, right? Like everybody Mm -hmm. wants even me sometimes, I want immediate answers for things. It's okay if you have to wait 24 hours for an email response, right? Like unless it's something that is urgent or a a guest that you have been waiting to book for so long, who's just like the top of the top. I get that. But for the most part, everybody will be fine. Everybody will be fine. You know, just, (laughs) we all just kind of breathe a little bit. Like we're like, we're making podcasts. You know what I mean? Like this literally it's not brain surgery. It's not anything where anyone's life is on the line. Right. So I have to remind myself of that when I think about what's urgent, what's immediate. It's just like, okay, this is probably could wait till the morning or, or scheduling emails. I love that feature. I feel like I discovered it like early of 2020. So if I have a thought, say I'm like, okay, I have to get these thoughts out and I want to make sure I respond or I don't want to forget about it. Maybe it's 9 PM, right? I'll write the whole email out and I'll schedule it to go out in the next morning. So I don't seem like I'm doing all this at 10 PM at night, you know, when I really am. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I love that because it lets people know too, like, okay, like, you know, am I emailing you back at 11 p.m. at night? So we're, I'm not going to do right. that with you. I've done that before. And then you, when you start doing that, people start getting used to that. And they mm-hmm. start like, oh, well, if I email her this idea at midnight, she's going to, don't do it. I mean, do it, but I'm not going to respond until the next day. But scheduling, scheduling, uh, scheduling emails is like one of my favorite things to do. It is just, I think it's like the coolest thing ever. Is that a feature on Gmail? Yeah, you can do it on your mobile or on the uh, on the desktop feature, but you just schedule it. I think it's so cool, but I think it helps to set boundaries. So yeah, my days are kind of wild, you know. And then I have a puppy, so it's like in between (laughs) meetings and interviews, you know, I've got a I'm I'm housebreaking a puppy and spending time with a puppy, and I'm also a person. So you know, thinking Mm -hmm. about scheduling my doctor's appointments or like my therapy sessions, like all of those things have to be included and prioritized. so each day looks different, but um, yeah. I'm definitely an early riser and at 6 p.m. we cutting things off at that point. That's good. That's impressive. I'm way more erratic. I'm way more erratic than what you, what you described. Hey, different but things are for different folks. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to take a quick break to read one of your reviews that came through about the pod. So obviously I love to create what I create, but it ultimately doesn't get anywhere or make the impact I want it to if not for you all. So I appreciate your time and words and shares, and I always want to show you love too. So today's review shout out is titled A Powerful Space. It reads, shout out to Alexandra for taking this dive and engineering a space for women to be recognized in podcasting. She has grown multitudes from her very first blog to now podcasting, and I'm so excited to hear the unique stories of women behind the mic that don't normally get told. 
this space is so needed. So thank you again, Alexandra. Let's go. And then a bunch of fire flames after it. So I'm not going to lie. I feel a little silly reading these out loud since they're about me, but I think it's just like a personal growth thing I need to deal with because it's totally fine to be reading these out loud and for me and you to want to share with everyone what people are saying about the work that we do. And I have a hunch who the author is just based off the punctuation, but since Apple Podcasts doesn't always use real names, I'm not positive. So if it is you, please let me know so I can thank you personally. And if you, my listener friend, want to get your review shared on a future episode and are loving what you hear, please leave a five-star written review and I'll definitely keep a lookout for it and hopefully read it on a future episode. But let's get back to Gabrielle. I want to ask for people who are also listening and trying to just figure out like what these jobs entail because I think for people just just entering the industry they're like okay what's producing and what's editing and what's the deal with with the terminology but like particularly when you were talking I was thinking of you know following up with guests that you want booking people doing pre-interviews what does that look like um I guess to your like your larger question like what is all that stuff I am of the mindset that you have to define for yourself what these roles are, but also understand if you're like seeking a job or seeking mm-hmm. a role somewhere else, seeing how they define it. Because I think that people define these terms differently. Um, I think at least when I was coming into the industry, it was like a producer means that you do everything. It means that you, 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 you may be, you may even be able to host, right. But it's like you, like you engineer sessions and you, you know, engineer like recording sessions and like you, you know, you're cutting tape and you're kind of putting the final mixes together, all of those things. And I had explored all those things, right. Like Pat Hindenburg had all those things. And I was like, I don't like the side of production. Like I respect it. And there's a lot of value in it when, which is why even the teams that I'm all in, that's a priority for us. We make sure we have editors and engineers who love doing that and do it really well. Right. But like, I, I really struggled with this for a while, even up until earlier this year, where it was like, uh, I am a producer, right? I'm a producer who does not like to cut tape. I have no interest in cutting tape. I have no interest in learning how to cut tape. And that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, and you may not be okay with it for whatever reasons that you're not okay with what I do, but like, I'm okay with it. Because I know that again, back to my comparative advantage, like, that's not where, like, that's not where my time, that's, that's just not, that's not my space. You know what I mean? But it's, it's, it's something that I obviously have had to learn in the sense of like becoming aware of like, what does it mean? What does something that is edited well sound like versus something that could be improved? Like my ear is sharp to these things. Right. But like in terms of spending my time to actually go in to make the technical changes, like that's not something that I actually really enjoy. I, I, it, I found it to be quite draining. I found it to be like, mm-hmm. oh, this is not my happy space, you know, but what I do love doing and what I get a chance to do is helping to think through like, what does a season kind of sound like, right? Like wh- what are some of the goals that we have, right? So kind of really big picture thinking um, with Natal, especially as like a narrative docu-series. It's like, you have to really think about that when you got eight episodes, like how are we getting from here to here, right? And I love that because it's, it's also thinking about what 
are some of the really important themes that we want to harp on? What are the kind of voices? Who are the kind of voices that we want to hear from and about, right? I love that. And I'm also able to do that on the other shows too. So it's a lot of what I'm doing is like researching, right? It's um, also booking, right? Coordinating with talent or individuals who we're trying to have on the various shows. Um, scripting is like another thing that I also um, am heavily involved with, right? And it looks different for different shows. And for some, they don't even need it, right? But like, for instance, for Natal, it's it's a highly scripted show. It is a docu-series, right? There's no way we can just go in and just kind of, uh, uh, uh. so, you know, there's, and so there's, there's that that's happening, right? There's the research part. Um, but it's, and then also not with Natal too, I'm also hosting. So I think producing can look like a lot of different things, right? Like I would not call myself an editor in the sense that I'm going in to edit tape, right? But thinking about my role, maybe more on the editorial side, like that's mm. something I very much so embrace. I understand how things should be coming together. I understand when things are, something is missing from the puzzle piece. So mm. I guess that's what I really like. I, I guess I find for me, producing is a bit of a, is a bit of a puzzle piece. It's right. It's a, it's kind of like a big problem solving game, right? Like we've got this goal in mind. How do we get there? And there's so many cool ways to go there, right? Like so many different rich sound elements that you can kind of include and weave into uh, reported pieces and storytelling that can allow us to get to the end goal. Right. Um, and so I think that's how I think of my role as a producer. I'm like a I'm like a problem, a professional problem solver as it comes to storytelling. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to look different. And so I think for people who are coming into this space, like just to be open to producing and production, looking differently in different places and spaces, and also figuring out what you really enjoy about the process. Not everybody has to do everything. I don't believe in that. And mm-hmm. people were always telling me at first, like, you should really just, you know, just keep practicing with this or this, and you can really have it under your belt. I didn't want it under my belt, right? If I wanted it under my belt, I would have done it, but I didn't enjoy it. And so I think it's also I don't know any parents that are forcing their kids to go into podcasting. So if I have it kind of right, maybe uh, we're all kind of making an active decision and choice to be in this space. So I say with that, you should make an active decision and choice to figure out what you really love about this part of the process. And that's what I had to do. Mm-hmm. And, but once I did, I still have to find a way to get comfortable with it. And now I'm comfortable with it. It's like, this is what I do. This is what I don't do. But because I don't do it, I know exactly who should be doing it. I, you know, I'm familiar with like the rates you pay people who should be doing this work. Like I'm not so divorced from it. I just know that that's not where my talents lie. And I don't want them to lie there. I want them to lie over here. So then when we all come together, that it's like, oh, you know, Tierra Darnell, who's an incredible producer, editor for Natal, Tierra does her thing with editing. And that's amazing. So when Tierra and I get together, right after I've done my script, after I've like, you know, produced um, these interviews, we come together and it's just beautiful, right? Because she does what she does really well. I do what I do really well. And we come together. We don't all need to be doing everything. And so that's my attitude. So I think I would encourage people to just realize that like, you don't have to do everything. You, you, can be knowledgeable about things and not have an expertise in things and still be a valuable part of a team and still be a valuable producer. And I've struggled with that. And I just try and remind myself of this, um, when I'm saying, um, cause I think it can be hard, but I think it's, you know, you know, you just gotta do your own thing. You gotta, you gotta do what makes sense for you. And it could be everything for me. It's not. <laughs> so that's where I am. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, you like truly lit up when you were talking about that. Like I can tell how much you love the part of what you're doing with producing. Just, it was awesome. I hope other people light up when they talk about what they do. Yeah. Right. Like I think if I had to talk about, you know, cutting tape all day, I wouldn't, <laughs> that's not, 
I don't enjoy that. I don't want to do that, you know, yeah. but I know when I get it back, like, oh, this needs to be smoothed out some more. We need to <laughs> add a space here. Or like, I, I love that I'm, my ears even sharper to like where music, like music cues, you know, like, <laughs> oh, music should start, you know, the music should start coming up. It should fade, you know, a little bit long, you know, fade a little bit longer or like it, the music ended too abruptly or can we smooth this out? Like, I love that I'm aware of those things now, but I'm not having to sort of do them. Right. But I'm <laughs> like, I'm, cause I'm respectful of that. It's a really important part of the process. It's just not my part of the process. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, okay. So let's get into natal. We definitely, we definitely got to go there. Um, so I remember hearing you talk about it at work it, which was last October and it, we're about it's I guess, wild. Eight, yeah. And and that's before we had a name for natal. Really? We were still calling it a docu series. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's and I remember like I, I don't remember the exact amount, but you said you had been working on it for a few months already, and then it came out in April of this year, and so it's been now I guess like about eight months or so since you've since I heard you talk about it. So that's but it's been I'm almost wondering. a year of working on it, right? Yes. So for we're recording this now. This is July. Um, so in July 2019, my childhood best friend developed preeclampsia, right? So she was pregnant. She's around the seven-month mark and started having, you know, symptoms like uh, rapid weight gain, like 40 pounds in two weeks and um, just like a lot of excessive swelling in the face and then eventually goes in for a checkup and the blood, her blood pressure had just skyrocketed and she had preeclampsia and it's something Beyonce actually had, talked about in her 2018 Vogue cover story and it's actually a pregnancy condition that disproportionately affects, you know, black women and black birthing parents. But for me, that was the first time that a birth story had hit home, at least at, at this age, right? Um, where I'm of the age, right? Like around that sort of 30 year old mark where people are kind of either starting to kind of start families or, you know, think about that or talk more about it. So this kind of brought a lot of things home for me. And it was just like, I don't, it was really hard to kind of grasp. It was like one moment you were seeing pictures of, you know, my friend hiking with her big belly bump and just looking radiant. And yeah. then I went to go see her after she gave birth to her baby girl. And it was just like, what happened? You know, trying to figure out like, what is preeclampsia like really? And, and, and talking with her, I remember she telling me like, Gab, you've got to do something about this. And I, because mm -hmm. I had told her, you know, I had been interested in doing something around black maternal health. I didn't know what, but I just knew that there was something there. And she kind of gave me her blessing. Not even kind of, she did. She's like, you've got to do something. Like, it's important. She's like, I didn't even know what preeclampsia was until, you know, I had to give birth two months early, right? And and was almost died from it. Yeah. So that kind of started things like a true millennial. I took to Twitter when I was, so I was at my friend's house <laughs> learning and hearing her story about giving birth and just kind of, you know, trying to be supportive with her and her mom and her partner and um, took to Twitter and I, you know, it's up there still, but it basically was like, you know, this is a preeclampsia is a condition that we can't afford to not be talking about. And it went viral. And that kind of is like the beginning of natal, if you will. And so this tweet showed me a couple of things. One was that there were so many people who were not only liking and sharing it, but like leaving their personal stories in the replies. It let me know that there's a lot of just everyday, I mean, regular, regular folks 
who are grappling with the same things that Beyonce, Serena Williams, gold medalists, uh, Allison Felix are grappling with, right? And kind of get these big cover stories and they get these huge platforms to talk about. There's folks every day, right? Like in communities that we live in or know of that are grappling with some really, really unfortunate circumstances, right? Like within our hospital system, within our medical care system, when it's time to give birth, when it's time to welcome a new life into this world. And I think I saw a lot of the replies just like, wow, people don't have a space to really share or people are sharing this for the first time or people look like they're, they're, people look like they would love to have some community around this, but don't currently. And then also Martina Abrahams Alunga, who is the founder of You Had Me at Black, a wonderful producer, storyteller who like me, uh, you know, switched careers into audio storytelling. She was uh, doing marketing for big tech firms in the Bay Area. Um, and she and I had already been in touch because I had worked on um, a volunteer producer for, as a volunteer producer on uh, You Had Me at Black. So we had already had a relationship. She replied and was like, oh, I've been interested in doing something around Black maternal health too. And I said, well, cool, let's talk. And we did. And we were very like-minded in our approach and centering the stories of Black um, birthing people and wanting to do it in a docu-series style, but also talk about what's going right, what could be going right, talk about the solutions, but also talk about some of the topics that just like culturally Black folks don't really talk about openly. So thinking about pregnancy loss, right? Like what is you know, what does miscarriage and stillbirth mean? And like, what does that look like for black families? Uh, thinking about postpartum depression and reproductive mental health, but also thinking about what are some really joyful experiences? Like what does really good care for black birthing parents look like? What can it look like? So it's also an exercise in helping us to reimagine, which I think is so much of what we're doing in 2020, um, is reimagining what systems and structures can look like and thinking about how we can also reimagine different types of conversations and understandings about what birthing while black looks like. And so that's what Natal sets out to do. So the first season is um, eight episodes. And again, like I said, we cover so many topics and we're hearing from parents who identify across the gender and sexuality spectrum, who are in different parts of the country, right? So they're not just all LA or all New York, right? We've got parents from the Dirty South. We've got parents um, on the East Coast. We've got parents just like and outside of Los Angeles, right? And these kind of uh, more like, I would call them like, uh, I don't know, like in the suburbs or like, I don't know, just like outside of LA, right? So kind of hearing from parents who just have very different experiences. Um, but I think the thing that unifies them is that they're all black and, and trying to conceive or give birth. And so we're able to pass the mic over to them and they share their pregnancy and childbirth and postpartum stories in their own words. And we're also weaving in narration, right? So Martina and I are both um, hosts on the show. So we're helping to kind of guide you through the stories, explain some terms, and then kind of get you back into those stories. And we're also oftentimes weaving in experts Though we call our parents experts, right? They're experts of their own stories. Right. Um, we think about the role of researchers and uh, medical providers and birth workers and advocates. Um, they're also weaved into these episodes as well. So it's kind of like you kind of come for like, it's like a little learning session, but it's kind of told in a way, it's narrated in a way where it feels like, or we hope that it feels like you're kind of sitting on the couch with a really good friend with a glass of wine. It's kind of like your really dope friend is doing some really dope stuff. And she's like, <laughs> let me tell you about this. And you get a chance to listen. So you don't feel like someone is kind of 
hitting you over the head with stuff. It's kind of like, girl, did you just hear what they just said? Or that doctor, you know, we really, we just talk like how we would talk normally, but we're yeah. talking about, you know, the medical heavy you know, shit. system. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about heavy stuff in a way that's <laughs> accessible to people. Um, and it's done really, really well. <laughs> and um, I think it's done better than what we, like we knew it would do well, but it's done really well so far, right? The time of this recording, we're, we're at the halfway point for the season and we're already very much so in the midst of planning for season two, not even just for the stories, but just like in terms of the business and um, like legal structuring of natal. That's, it's getting to that point, right? And so it's also, I think, a testament of like when you have an idea, right? And you're in community with people who are like-minded. Um, it's, a, it's I think it just speaks to like coming together to really create something that you know is missing, that is not there. There are not any narrative docu-series on Black birthing. There are podcasts and we highlight them that focus on birth stories, but that's different than a docu-series, right? That has like, we have episodes one through eight. This is how we're, this is the narrative arc. This is what we're covering. This is our end goal, right? But you know, it's different. And, and there's one is not better or worse. It's just that we knew that this was not in mm-hmm. existence in the current landscape. And so it's been beautiful that people have also received it in that way and realized like, wow, haven't heard anything like natal before. And it's, it's gotten the attention of everyone from, you know, parents in small towns and big cities, parents across, you know, the world. We've got listeners across Africa, across Europe, across Asia and Australia. Can you imagine? I just can't imagine sometimes. Or like um, across South America. It's, I'm just like people are listening to black birthing stories in like Lima, Peru or in <laughs> Sao Paulo, right? Brazil, um, in South Africa, in Nairobi, Kenya. It's wild to me, right? It's, it's necessary and they absolutely deserve, these stories deserve to be listened to, but it's crazy when you kind of go from, you know, this idea that you had, right? Like your childhood best friend is like, has this near death experience and it kind of sparks something so much bigger than you or her, right? Mm -hmm. It sparks something that is necessary for all of us to be talking about engaging in because when you address the conditions of, um, you know, black perinatal health here in this country, and you actually start to invest and make changes to improve those conditions you literally are lifting the boat for everyone and we're seeing that right now with the uprisings around the world right for black lives matter when you lift the boats of the ones at the very bottom everybody rises right mm-hmm. so if you really talk about black maternal health black perinatal health care right black you know care for black birthing parents that means we're really talking about for everybody but if we start with what we know is literally some of the worst outcomes in the country we're going to lift everybody's boat so i think it also allows everybody to engage and everybody think about what their role is, even if you're not black or even if you're not a parent, right? I'm not a parent, but I have a role in this too. That means I have a role to support those around me and in my community who are black birthing parents to share resources, right? Um, to say, oh, hey, I heard about this. Let me send this to you. I have a, you know, a duty to share information or contacts like, oh, here's a doula if you're looking for one, right? Um, I'm also going through doula training. I guess by the time this episode comes out, I'll be a doula. And so I think it also a challenge, natal challenges all of us, regardless of your parental status, your marital status, your gender identity, where you are in the country. But I think what's really beautiful about natal is that it challenges all of us, right? Regardless of our marital status, regardless of our race and ethnicity, actually, right? Regardless if we are parents or not, it calls all of us to think about how we can do better by on behalf of and for black birthing parents. And I think it does so in a way where you feel 
like you're being invited to this table. It's not in a way to shame or to say, you didn't know about this word or you didn't know what postpartum depression was. It's like, no, like let's just talk about it together. And so I think it does in a way where it's a lot of love centered and it's a lot of humility centered. And at the end of the day, we're just positioning, we're, 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 we're extending a space for black birthing parents to share their stories because they are the experts of their bodies and their, their experiences. And so I think that's also what's different is that, this is not a story about, it's, it's not a story where we're synthesizing their stuff, their shit, right? It's them telling you what their shit was or what their experience was. And I think that's oftentimes missing from the journalism around, um, you know, black maternal health and black perinatal health more broadly is that it's never from like the perspective of the person experiencing, right? Whether it's grave injustices or some of the most beautiful moments of their life, we still need to hear it from them, right? And I think there's some power to that, a lot of power in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're doing with Natal, no small feet, right? And so um, no big deal. So that's what we've been doing, and we're going to keep continuing to do it because there's so many layers to the birthing experience, to the parenting experience, to the reproductive experience that we don't oftentimes get to hear about, and. It's just really beautiful, and um, I love it. I love it with every every fiber of my body. Um, it means the world to me that we're able to sort of create the space for people, and it's really grown even beyond a podcast into what I would call like the natal digital community, right? Yeah. We do like a lot of digital engagement um, through IG Live, especially during quarantine. Um, well, uh, by the time this comes out, we'll have hosted our first ever natal summit, right? A convening of birth workers and advocates and parents, lawmakers to sort of talk about what's going well, what they're working on to make things better, right? Very solutions oriented. And so I love it because for me, natal is the culmination of all the things I was doing before. It brings in the politics, it brings in the policy, it brings in the storytelling and, and sort of leveraging media and technology to, to convey Right, these powerful stories, but these, but also these powerful stories that are very much so connected to policy, right? And and thinking about um, how all of those come together. And so for me, natal is like, the, natal is like a dream come true. You know, it's like all, the thing that I have been wanting to do for so long. I didn't know it'd be about birthing, right? And like <laughs> about parents and like reproductive health and justice. I didn't know it was going to be that, but it is, and it it means the world to me that we're able to do this through podcasting. And um, it's just, yeah, it's a really beautiful experience, even on the days where I I could use more sleep. I'm I'm just, you know, I'm just so in love with it. And I love that the the team that we have uh, built around Natal and able to sort of uh, employ and, and provide, you know, really competitive stipends for black creatives, right? We work with a team of black women and black femmes. That's really dope to me. I'm like, they don't do, like, where are they doing that? Like we do that and we're not even on like a real, real budget. It's like, but no, but it's like when you have a certain set of values, like you just have those values and they're going to kind of manifest however they manifest, but those values don't change. You know what I mean? So employing black creatives, like that was never a question. That was what it was always going to be. Right. And so it's just exciting to think about how natal right came from this very personal experience, but it's so much bigger than me. And, and it should be so much bigger than me because we're talking about black birth stories and black parenting stories. And, and that affects all of us, right? What are, what are the conditions and environments that like new life is coming into, right? And how can it be improved? So it's just, I could go on and on and on about most topics, but especially natal, because I just think it's really special. And I hope that if you haven't listened to it, that, you know, you just take some time 
um, to listen. You can skip around, right? Um, you don't have to listen in consecutive order, but I hope that you listen and feel, you know, and, and maybe you're called to act or, or to just share it with someone else. But that's my baby. That's that's the podcast baby right there. Yeah, it's it's truly amazing. I've I've learned a lot from it already. And, you know, I kind of came into listening to it with my own distrust of doctors, especially in like the gynecological space. And and then on top of that, like learning, like how much it's systemically been affected by racism and how that comes like I just I thought of the people that I knew who were studying to be nurses and doctors in undergrad and I was like you need to hear this like you need to listen to this Um, and that's one of the you know and we we made natal so you know obviously the first priority was to share and, and engage parents and loved ones right family members those in community with black birthing parents but we also wanted to make sure that Medical students, medical providers, right? Whether you're uh, an RN or an OBGYN or some kind of specialist or a lactation nurse or a birth worker, like everybody can access this, but also everyone can learn something from it. And we've actually heard from doctors around the country saying, thank you so much for natal because this has now allowed us to refrain, you know, this has allowed us to think about how we can improve our care for for queer parents or for like Mm -hmm. low income parents or other ways that we can ask questions and take better care of our black birthing parents, like seeking, you know, seeking care in the hospital or in the clinic setting. And so that means the world. If we get no other messages besides like two, just like that, like that means we've done something right. Because everyone can take something from this, right? Like everyone can like leave a natal episode and kind of you learn more, but also like you have a new idea about how maybe you can do something differently or better. And that's where it all starts. But, you know, it starts with knowledge. And so yeah. we just should try to find a way to kind of bring all this knowledge, right? Because it's a lot of heavy stuff and it's a lot of systemic racism, all that bullshit that continues to thrive in America. Like trying to sort of like pre- like present that in a digestible manner is always going to be tough. But letting folks know that there, you know, that there's like, there's solutions out there and, and everything isn't all bad always. Right. And, um, so being able to highlight like the really dope OBGYNs who are doing some really good stuff and who emphasize trust building visits with their, with their, with their patients and, and those midwife, uh, researchers like Dr. Mimi Niles, who is helping to, to teach students, um, the history of gynecology and obstetrics and think about how do we sort of undo the racist underpinnings, right. That continue to manifest and the way that we care for black birthing parents in hospitals, right? Like, so we're talking to people who are also doing the work that they're talking about, who also remind us that like these stories are not all doom and gloom, that there is hope, right? And even within the stories themselves, no matter how sad of a story we present to you, there's always going to be some joy, right? People finding out they got pregnant, hearing that first cry, being able to reconnect like with their partners through the process. Like there's a lot of beautiful moments and I think it captures the nuance of it all, but it, it also calls all of us to kind of think about how we can change our behaviors. And I don't know, I don't know if you can ask for anything better, but I could be biased, but I'm like, kind of does a little bit of everything that I hadn't really heard or seen before. And yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so one more question about natal, and then I have a few more and then we'll wrap up a few rapid fire ones. Um, so when, when you're working on these stories, like you mentioned, it is like, it's a mix of, you know, positive and also really, really scary moments uh, and just really deeply upsetting. I wonder how, how does that affect you as someone working on these stories and like, how do you kind of 
protect yourself in the process of working on them. And maybe it's not super affecting to you, but I just imagine at least if there were certain topics I was working with, I know that it'd be very like triggering for me. So I wonder if that's like something that hits home for you. And then if you, how you deal with that. It's, it's an interesting question. And don't think it's one that I've been asked yet about natal, but also now that I'm thinking about it, I don't, I mean, it's hard to say because I, so we, um, we did our pre-interviews for natal, um, at the top of 2020. Mm -hmm. So that meant that we were just kind of talking to all the folks who reached out to us, submitted, you know, initial stories. And so you're hearing all kinds of stories from all kinds of people all over the country. And, you know, what's interesting is that I don't remember ever a point during the pre-interview process where I just felt really heavy after a story, even Mm -hmm. after the heaviest stories, I felt energized and I felt motivated to kind of continue going with natal. But I, someone who is like definitely like an empath and definitely someone who absorbs energy. I, the energy I took from parents was never one where I feel like, um, I definitely reflected a lot. Like I thought a lot, I still can hear some parents voices, like sometimes their laughter or remember Mm -hmm. some funny moments and stuff. But we also like connected with the parents as people first, you know, like the pre, that was a pre-interview was just kind of just like, talking like normally and just to get a sense of their story and things that they wanted to talk about, obviously some basic information about, you know, their identity and demographics and household structure and that kind of stuff. But I got to know them as people and it was like, this was a slice of their story. It wasn't like, it wasn't who they were in their totality. So Mm -hmm. I don't like, even with the really heavy stories, it was still just like, that was really powerful, but the parents that we've talked to, whether or not they're included in this first season, they all had like a really clear sense of um, agency and like ownership over their story. So I feel like when they were sharing, it was like they were letting us in. I think if anything, I felt humbled mm-hmm. and I still feel humbled even when I listen to episodes, even though I will work on, you know, we'll, we'll, team will work on them for weeks and stuff, but there's still like a huge sense of humility that I have mm-hmm. that I'm like, wow, they really trusted us. So um I don't know that I ever felt like a sense of heaviness from even the heaviest of stories. Mm. Um, I don't know what that means though, but I, yeah, but I think in terms of like my space, um, I don't know. I didn't feel heaviness. I all, I'm always like, I'm always ready to like listen to it again. And I just get so much, I feel a lot of warmth from yeah. their stories and I feel a lot of joy. And I feel like in the stories where there's maybe more difficulties than others, I just, again, I have like a profound level of humility that they would even yeah. think to consider us to share. Yeah. And so I think I just try and take all of those things and just try and do really, we just, we just do really right by our parent storytellers. We do right yeah. by anybody that we come into contact with, but especially our parent storytellers. Um, so I don't think I ever had a point where it was like, I need a break from the content or break mm-hmm. from the things. Cause I was like, man, these stories are so powerful and so important and worthy to, of being out there. Yeah. I never felt down about it. And um, so I don't know. That's me though. Maybe other people yeah. on our team can feel differently with some of the stories are heavier ones. Like we, um, we have an episode on loss or that explores miscarriages and still in stillbirths. And even working on that episode, Martina um, hosted that one. Uh, I still, I still didn't feel a sense of heaviness. It was like, mm-hmm. Ooh, this is some heavy stuff, but I didn't necessarily <laughs> need a break from it. It was just like, this is heavy and I'm happy that we're getting this out there and we're talking about solutions. Maybe that's why I don't feel like this heaviness, you know, like 
We're also talking about how things can be different. We're talking about maybe steps that the parent themselves took, like our like our a mental health episode. Um, you know, hearing yeah. that's actually my aunt, which is funny. I didn't oh, really? Say it. Yeah. It's oh, wow. we, we played around with how we would sort of share personal connections or not. That one I didn't, but that's my aunt. You know, I remember even recording with her, like. I still got so much energy from her story, even with the saddest parts. But we also made sure that episode, Dr. Simi Bambache is the reproductive psychiatrist from Cedar sinai who's a part of that episode. So we're talking about solutions too. Yeah. So it's like, I think if you get too deep in the heavy, you have to find a way to bring you and your listener out of it because nobody wants to be stuck in heaviness. So even with each episode, we think about, okay, this is really heavy. So yes, we're going to add some musical cues to help this, this, and that. But how do we actually... Like, how does the narration, the transition to narration, how does it help to balance out the heaviness? So that's something we're really mindful of. So maybe that's why I have never, I have yet to really get fully like down or like depressed or just like overwhelmed by the stories themselves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, like having the intention there, 100%. Um, I mean, that's kind of the whole purpose of like any type of healing story, you know? Um, right, exactly. But yeah, it's just something I'm always curious about. With yeah, people it's a valid who, question. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for being so candid about it. Um, yeah. I had to think through it in real time. <laughs> both read and cut stuff down. Yeah. No, you answered it really well. Okay. One more important PSA. Here's my challenge for you. Take a screenshot right now of this episode and share on social media with a tag to Podgerland and the guest. I want to know that you're listening and I want to shout you out. Also... Are you signed up for Padreland's email list yet? Because as much as I love social media and connecting through there, I'm also preparing for its demise, and I want to make sure that I stay in touch with you and we have control over our communication. Not only will you get important updates about this show, you'll get recommendations of other women-hosted podcasts, news related to podcasters you love, discounts on my cute-ass merch, and much more. Okay, let's get back into this interview. We should probably start to wrap up, but I have just three quick rapid fire questions for you. Kind of right now, um, who or multiple who's are uh, the name of some mentors in podcasting that you kind of look to or emulate? Yeah. Oh, there's a few for sure. So TK Dutess is like, she's like homegirl, big sister, like podcaster extraordinaire. I feel like everybody in the industry knows her, but TK like, that's that's my girl. Um, Juleka Lantigua Williams. I don't know if I would have started my own company if it wasn't for her. Um, when it was time to make some difficult decisions, I called her because I didn't know any other black woman, woman of color who was kind of like on their own, like had a company, right? I'm not necessarily at the size or scale of, uh, you know, Lantigua Williams, her company, but she's the only person I kind of saw like, Oh, she's doing this thing. Right. Like people I know who maybe are like, um, even TK for example, or, um, there's like Chiquita. There's like so many people that I can like think of, even if I don't have personal relationships with them. Um, I don't know them to kind of like own like their own companies per se. So, so Juleka is the only one I really knew who was doing this thing. And, and she's been such a helpful and amazing resource. We don't talk often, but when we do, there's some substance, there's laughter, and there's real talk there. Because I'm definitely a no filter, like, let's just get to it, talk plain kind of person. And so Juleka was like the first person I called before I made the decision to go out on my own. And um, I, her words of advice for me, just thinking about what that could look like and thinking about my rates, thinking about 
the scope of my work. Like I still think about that. Um, just trying to think like, I'm, I feel like those are the two I have to admit, I'm not like super like industry, if you will. And that's like a choice that I've made. So I definitely see and recognize a lot of names. Um, but when I think about like, if I need to call and, and seek advice, that those are two people that I, I definitely think about um, for sure. And then I have folks who are like, uh, peers that I equally respect. So like Tierra Darnell, our editor for Natal, Martina, um, she kind of is, comes at podcasting from a different angle, but we, you know, there's times where we talk Two people, two black women who switch careers into this space and have, you know, companies now who were doing storytelling for black people and about black people. Like that's very unique. There's not a lot of folks I can talk to who are doing that. Um, Janina Jeff is a good friend of mine, also a a big Spellman sister of mine, and she is the host and and creator of In Those Genes, which explores um, sort of genetics or black folks genetics, uh, black folks history through genetics and hip hop. And so she's someone that I, you know, we can talk podcasting, you know, so I can find like mentor and guidance from people at all levels, I think, and um, the circle is small and tight. Um, oh, and how do I not mention Adiza Egan, right? Like everyone knows and loves Adiza, who's now at New York Times, The Daily. She's also an advisor for Natal too. So oh, cool. she's, um, she's a really special person, a really special talent. And um, my homegirl, Issa Beth Mendoza, we were in the trenches together uh, when we she again also transferred like uh, she transitioned into this into this kind of industry as well from public health and she and I there's like no big decisions I feel like either one of us make that's in this space that we don't talk to each other about right like we're always kind of very supportive of each other and always here to bounce ideas or vent or try to brainstorm some solutions or so I'm sure I'm forgetting people but those are some immediate names that come to mind um that I just I really am, am thankful for. And yeah. you can tell they're all, they're all, um, they're all women of color, mostly black women, but all women of color for sure. And I, I think that says something too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm mindful of that and I'm, I'm very protective of those relationships and I hold them in very high regard. Cool. Uh, I'm actually, I'm interviewing Isabeth in like the next month. Oh, I love it. I'm so excited. She's, oh, that's my girl. I'm going to text her after this. No, she's great. She is, she is really, really, really great. I remember like yours and TK's talk during work. It was like one of my like, all, like all time faves, like top Thanks. four. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember you quoted Isa and I, I loved the quotes that you had from her and, you know, started following the work that she's doing. And I just, I love what they're doing at Truth Be Told. Yeah, uh, she's doing some great work. I mean, like whenever I can put anybody I know on, I'm definitely going to do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just so thankful that people I do have around me, they they all have really good stuff to say. So sometimes it's like, oh, I can't put everybody <laughs> on this one time. But it's good to know that I can go to people who um, have my best interests at heart who mm-hmm. are going to give me frank advice because I'm open up to people about like negotiations and salaries or about maybe like personnel challenges. Like, and I can trust those people with, you know, because again, it goes back to shared values. Like we got shared values. So like, that's where we start with. And then the Mm -hmm. podcasting is just stuff on top of that. But at the end of the day, like I can trust those people as people and to give strong advice and sound advice and, and to really just show up as a friend. Right. And not always like, cause like, if you think about it too, we're kind of oftentimes trained to kind of be pitted against one another, especially like 
oh, there can only be so many women of color. There can only be so many black women. There can only be so many, like, whatever, all these, like, arbitrary ass rules that I don't know who even made, right? Like, no, we can all, like, thrive. We can all eat, right? Like, I don't need to have every contract, right? Like, there's a lot of contracts I've said no to because I'm like, even if I could make the time for the capacity, like, there's somebody else who can do this. Like, I don't mm-hmm. need to have, like, I don't, again, kind of going back to, I don't need to be able to master every facet of the production experience. I don't also need to master every contract that comes through, or I don't need to sort of be the one that has to, I don't have to absorb everything. You know what I mean? Like I can, mm-hmm. there's enough for us to share and enough for us to all eat, eat well and bring up other people behind us too. So the people I have around me, including Issa, you know, we all are kind of of that same mindset. And I think it's really awesome. And so, yeah, those are a few of my favorite folks, but it sounds like you know some of them too. So, well, I'm, I'm trying to get to know them more. I just say, I, I think that they're awesome. I love following the work they do, but I agree. I think, you know, those opportunities just bring more opportunities for like the people that it's not there and it, it is such a mentality that that's not a thing but it is a thing that's also part of the industry stuff like you know tell you like certain you know we only got so many voices or we can only do so many shows about like eh, f all that like we <laughs> do what we're gonna do and then you know we just we'll do what we do you know yeah. so just <laughs> i don't sure. like a lot of rules as you can tell so <laughs> uh okay so Separate from the podcast that you're working on, what are some that you are listening and loving right now? Oh, man. I'm going to just tell you. So (laughs) working on, I feel like, three podcasts, like the last thing I want to do in my free time is listen to podcasts. But when I do, let me tell you some that I do (laughs) listen to. I love The Takeaway by WNYC. I love The Takeaway. I think it's just such a refreshing spin on how news is told. Um, And I just love it. I love the angles that they cover and their storytelling. I'm so happy Tanzina is back. She um, had a baby earlier this year, um, but I love hearing her voice um, when it's time for me to like really get some news in um, for sure. So the takeaway is one of my favorites. I love bag ladies. I love it. Like they, they are so like, they're just fire. Like I love it. Cause like if I thought I was unfiltered and just like, they, they don't play, they don't play. And like, if I need that, like I'm feeling like I need to be in community and maybe I don't have that physically around me at the time. And I want to kind of, be in solidarity with some folks who are thinking through things in different ways as it relates to sort of like policy and structures and all that stuff. I love it. I love listening to them. And um, so that, that brings me like, you know, equal joy and like fire to kind of like keep going Um, in those jeans. I'm definitely catching up this 4th of July weekend on in in those jeans, but I really enjoy, you know, it's kind of cool being friends with a human geneticist, you know, like (laughs) you learn about a lot of stuff I don't even think about. And so I think, and that's also the cool thing about podcasts and just learn about a lot of, you know, new topics. Um, I got to tell you that high good people, and I, I feel like I'm pretty, maybe I'm biased. I mean, what is bias? Who knows? Like, what does bias even mean? <laughs> but I love high good people. I still think it's one of the best podcasts that I've heard. Um, and that's by Tierra Darnell, again, our editor for Natal. Okay. And high good people is all about, you know, cannabis legalization, um, cannabis legalization at the intersection of folks of color, right? So what does it mean now that sort of like weed is legal? Like, where does that how does that factor in for, for black folks who have been kind of serving time disproportionately so for repossession or, or, or dealing or whatever. Um, and also looks into like the economy um, of like cannabis and different facets of it. I think it's just really, really cool. Mm. So I enjoy that. Um, I feel like I'm blanking on things. Let me think. What else do I love listening to? Mm-hmm. I also like bodies. Um, oh. and kind of similar to natal in sort of like these medical stories. Yeah. Um, I was just told so about bodies, that one. 
like two bodies days is ago. good yeah bodies is good flyest fables i listened to the first season and that is um created produced and voiced by uh, morgan gibbons and it's just really fun and it's it's really cool to be able to kind of hear um you know stories that are kind of made for you know children like an audience of children but i really enjoy them and again i just I, I think they're just so well done and the lessons that come out of them are so strong. So, you know, I just feel like it just, for me, it really depends. You have me at black, like they're, they do some really dope storytelling, really dope season. Um, that's underway right now. I'm like, what else do I have? What else do I have? Um, Oh, and, um, um, Netflix strong black lead. I love that as well because they're able to sort of focus on those sort of like, black movie stars or tv stars that like we haven't seen in decades or that like we you know we can't you know we, we, we've been we've been dying to hear from so i i just love like i guess i just love the stories that bring the stuff to life that you don't really get anywhere else and so i'm pretty open on where that can be or what that can look like <laughs> but that's kind of like if i'm digging into something I'm, I'm trying to learn something new um and sometimes i just kind of want to be entertained as well so you know, you don't always want to have to like critically think. You sometimes you just want to just listen. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and so I try to have podcasts that um, that fit that range. And there's all kind of you know, there's stuff in between those. But those are some that I enjoy. That I'm not really good at rapid fire, but um, those are <laughs> the things I like to listen to when I listen. Awesome. Um, okay, and then final question: Where can our listeners find you, and how can they support you in your work? Oh, I love I, these questions. Yeah. So, inspired by Here to Slay. I love that question at the end. Oh, yeah, at the some. end, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we can start that. So what you can definitely do is you can listen to some of the shows that I produce. So Here to Slay, um, the Black Feminist Podcast of Your Dreams, hosted by Roxanne Gay and Tressie <laughs> McMillan Cottom. That's available on Luminary, um, and that comes out every Tuesday. And then another show I produce also on the Luminary Network is The Blacklist. And it's, oh, it's just it's just such a delightful show, not to just to produce, but also to listen to. And it's these beautiful conversations with the filmmakers that you've heard of and the filmmakers you haven't heard of, but have worked on your favorite movies and shows. And they talk about, right, the writing process, a production process, and talk about the films that have inspired them, right, for years. And uh, the films that they love about love and war and their first uh, memories of films. And so it's like this really beautiful, um, I think a really beautiful hour that you have with the filmmaker. Um, And so those episodes are available on Luminary every Wednesday and just a really, really thoughtful show. Um, And so you can listen to those. And then of course you can listen to Natal and you can kind of enter the Natal world by visiting natalstories.com. You can listen to episodes there. You can listen to episodes wherever you get your podcasts as well. But we also have a resource hub. We have a community blog. You can listen. um, You can donate to Natal, um, to our production fund. Um, And to learn a bit more about me and um, my company, The Woodshaw, you can visit thewoodshaw.com to sort of kind of get all of that in one place. So there's lots of ways to sort of support me um, directly or indirectly, but hope that you'll pick one of them at least. <laughs> okay, great. And I'll put all of that in the show notes so people can easily click to it. Cool. Sounds good. <sighs> well, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thanks. Was... This has been great. I can't wait to hear it back. I so awkward listening back to myself, but I'm looking forward to hearing this. This has been really great, um, you know, being able to talk with you about this and this journey of mine. Our original music is produced by Carrie Blue, 
and everything else is produced by me, myself, and I, Miss Alexandra Cole. And you can follow me on Instagram at Podraland, P-O-D dot D-R-A-L-A-N-D, or Twitter at Podraland, minus the period. And you can find more of what I do on Podraland at www.podraland.com, where I recommend women-hosted podcasts and feature indie women podcasters. So I hope to see you there. Feel free to subscribe to the newsletter. You'll get recommendations and updates about this podcast. And finally, make sure to share this episode, tag us in it, like that shit, give us a review. Anything you do helps not just this podcast get more exposure, but also helps these women's voices be heard by way more people. And ultimately, that's our goal. So let's fucking do it. (laughs) 